0: David Massis, Uh Uh, he says, I'm currently in stage zero, despite attempting to transition to stage one for years, aim to one hour sit. Not once I lasted that long. And in fact, I haven't attempted to sit for weeks. To be fair, I just came out of a long depression and my self-discipline and motivation are recovering back from extremely low levels. I intellectually understand that meditation is crazy good for you, yet I haven't been able to transform that knowledge into fuel to fire up my motivation and anchor myself onto the pillow. I guess my question would be about self-motivation, something along the lines of how to build up the intention of sitting when motivation is a negative shortly after I sit so uh, david uh, you, you you are coming out of a severe depression, uh, and uh, so uh, I can understand that uh, um, that there's some residual effects of that. And what I'm seeing here is that uh, basically speak in terms of um you understand that meditation is crazy good for you and of course as you experience very acutely not that long ago uh, the state of mind that you've been in is one where uh your motivation to do anything for yourself has been severely impaired and so that's coming back. So the simplest answer that I can give you is, don't meditate because it's crazy good for you. Meditate because it's crazy good for everyone else around you. Uh, And try to take inspiration from the benefits that uh, others will experience those that are close to you, those that you come in contact just incidentally, and depending how far you go on the path and what degree of awakening you achieve, that what you can do for others is enormous. Um, Perhaps your post-depression state is is rather similar to uh, a mild form of depression, one of the things about depression is it is an extremely self-centered state of mind and i've experienced uh, a lot of depression in my own life Uh, the two things that i learned that helped me deal with depression back in those days is one is that no matter what you do do something and the other, which is probably the most powerful of all, is, is think about other people. do what you can for someone else, no matter how simple it is. Get out of yourself and get into others. And so that's where what I just mentioned is coming from. So you could think of this post of state you're in as being similar to what uh, is happening. During, during even milder forms of depression. And that's what I would recommend for you to do in your daily life is uh, no matter what you do, do something and as much as possible, uh, put your focus on what you can do for others and just try to get out of yourself. And then when you try to meditate, meditate for the benefit of others, Um, whatever you know and have learned about the way that meditation transforms a person, uh, particularly focus on how that transformation benefits uh, everyone around them and benefits the world at large and how awakening ultimately is for the benefit of all beings and let that be your motivation. Another thing is that perhaps setting a, an hour sit as your goal initially is contributing in some way to uh, subtle self-defeating. You know, you're setting yourself up for failure by doing that. Why not start out intending to meditate for 10 minutes and do it every day? And then after a week or so, see if you can extend that 15 minutes and then to 20 and so, so on and so forth. Don't don't pick a goal that, if you find that you can't continue after 15 minutes, is interpreted by your mind as, as a failure. Uh, set a goal that is reasonable. that's uh, maybe look at what how long you've typically been able to sit and pick that or just a few minutes longer than that, and make that your goal. And the closer you come to it, uh, just find more satisfaction in that. Um, I, I that's I I th- would love to hear back if this advice helps you. But yeah, set set a more reasonable goal than one hour. Do it for the sake of everyone else and not for yourself. And in your daily life, in every way that you can do whatever you can to be of benefit to others. So I hope that that helps. And I'm sorry that you had to wait so long for an answer. Uh, Perhaps maybe you're already beyond uh, the stage zero that this question describes. So thank you. And uh, the ch- question from Jake Stellman is in the same category, Ted. Is that correct? Jake and e- Evgeny?
1: Evgeny. But actually, uh, that question that you just answered was not the question that uh, that I got the request about. It's another one from uh, Philip Jovanovsky. Uh, uh, let me copy I'm- the link to that into the... Uh, chat so that you can see it because I, I i must have screwed up when i uh not that i mean i think that it was actually great that you answered the question that you did but uh but okay. let me also get you this one because he seemed to it's a it's a, yeah. to me it seems like a good question to answer so <laughs> uh,
0: i maybe i i'm looking at the list that comes up was looking at the list that comes up for me on Patreon site. So. Yeah.
1: I, I'm not sure what happened there. I intended for, for this question from Philip to be the first one in on the list but I must have uh, not gotten it right somehow.
0: Okay. Well, not a problem. I've got it now. So. Hey. <laughs> um, it says, Dear Chuladasa, from the perspective of the Dharma, what are the most important methods to use in communication with your spouse and children? Example, raising children in a way that points them in the direction of awakening, mindful listening, etc. Also, from the Dharma point of view, how to approach deciding whether to have a child, considering the future suffering that a new human being will inevitably experience. Thank you. So, there's a certain generality to your first question, uh, Philippe, Um, um, what are the most important methods to use in communication with your spouse and children? Well, I think that uh, especially with children, they, they benefit most from being treated and recognized as the developing human beings that they are, who are in the process of assimilating the values that will guide them for the rest of their life. And what we would most hope for uh, as as meditators and as someone who is on the path of uh, awakening, is that those particular values uh, would be of the sort that would lead them eventually to choose to uh, pursue their own personal spiritual development and their own awakening. Something that uh, is an interesting phenomenon its occurred with my family and uh, it seems to have occurred with... Uh, most of the other meditation teachers that I've talked to is that because part of being de- so dedicated to the dharma uh, and to practice, part of the effect of that is uh, to leave your family feeling a little bit abandoned by it. And, uh, you know, I, I was, it, it saddened me to hear um, my son say, "I, I feel like uh, I feel like Buddhism has stolen you away," and so um, what I was about to say that I experienced, and uh, uh, other teachers have as well, is that you know, especially in the teen years when a lot of individuation is taking place, and that individuation revolves uh, involves a certain amount of Rejection of of parents—it's a temporary thing. That the same thing with with uh, my children. That you know, the last thing that they were interested in is uh, Dharma and meditation. But the wonderful thing is, is that when they grew up uh, and had achieved their own individuation uh, as uh, as persons in their own right. Uh, My son actually attended a two-week retreat that I taught and has continued to have a very strong interest in his own spiritual development. There's still a little bit of uh, that, uh, uh, I've got to do it my own way. And so uh, he is is exploring uh, in a different direction, which is absolutely fine, it's wonderful. But um, the, this is, I mean, the ideal thing would be for us all to, uh, uh, as we practice the Dharma, what we would love to see is that our children are interested and they meditate too, and they practice and study the Dharma, and they more or less follow in our footsteps. And that may sometimes happen, but. Um, We have to accept the fact that it doesn't always and it can take different forms. Uh, I would just call to mind the situation with Stephen Levine and his son Noah. And you can see clearly the same pattern in a more extreme form that I just described with my own son. Because Noah's rejection of his father's value uh, led him to... uh, uh, serving time in prison, but then he came out and he started his own uh, uh, his own dharma teachings, uh, punk dharma. Uh, of course, subsequent events have been unfortunate. So that kind of takes me back to my first recommendation is for all of your family, your children, your spouse, your siblings, your parents, for everything else, um, Try to exemplify in your life and in your relationships those values that you have learned from the Dharma and the understanding that you have achieved through your meditation practice. Just be a manifestation of that and uh, do anything that you can. Recognize that your children are going to go through A phase of rejection of of you in a whole lot of different ways, but they will also cease to do that once they once they have become their own person. So, you have to think ahead, and you have to try to talk to them and interact with them in a way that creates the seeds for uh, that process to take place uh, uh, and come to the to the most highly preferred outcome. I hope that, I hope that helps. Uh, the second part of your question here, um, deciding whether to have a child. Well, the, the desire to have children is an extremely powerful biological imperative that is very difficult to overcome. But the simple, obvious fact, beyond all of these uh, deep emotional urges and cravings is that there are far too many people on this planet that the carrying capacity for the planet Earth of human beings has been exceeded several fold. The inevitable consequence of this is going to be, certainly it's going to be an enormous amount of suffering in some form or another, but the only way that uh, the biosphere can normalize is for the human population to fall. And I don't know how the human population can be reduced to the levels that are uh, viable in the long term without such an enormous amount of suffering. So to bring another child into the world in response to the kind of craving that arises in us that leads us to make this decision, I don't think is the manifestation of wisdom there is a very positive way that you can satisfy that urge. Our nature is that we can take a child that is born of some other couple, but doesn't have someone to love them and care for them and nurture them. And uh, so that would be that would be the preferred alternative. Um, I feel very strongly that way. I have children, as you know, but um, I'd have to go into my personal history about how that happened, and I don't think it's necessary, but it is very clear to me now that there is a far better way to respond to that inclination. And that is to, is to uh, take in, to adopt uh, a child. Uh, and uh, your, your mind, your inclinations to have a child, if they are that strong, then they will, they will take that child in exactly the same way as if it were actually uh, carrying your own genes and uh but i i, I don 't think the world i the last thing that this world needs is more people and some people may not agree with that, uh, but uh, and of course uh, um, for all of you Catholics out there who might listen to this of course uh, I would imagine that the doctrines of the church and your understanding of what's going on in the world are probably already producing a lot of conflict in your mind about this. But uh, anyway, yes, it's not just the suffering that a new human being will experience, it's also the contribution that a new human being will make to the inevitable suffering. Of other humans and other beings of every sort. Okay, so let me go back to where the list of questions that I was dealing with before I discovered I was off
1: track. Let me see where. To go. Oh, it's interesting.
0: I've gone back there, and now Philippe's question is the first one. <laughs> okay, so uh, Jake Stellman, I think it would—that's the next one. Is that correct, Ted? Good. All right. Here we go then. Uh, hi, Jake. I understand that the to awakening is rewiring the brain to perceive reality in a manner that is a greater approximation of the truth rather than what evolution deemed important for the propagation of genes. I've heard that most successfully enlightened people are able to selectively tune into these viewpoints when they are useful and then drop back into their standard experience of self when it's appropriate. I'm wondering if there is a risk of going too deep to the point where one is not able to live a normal life in society because they are physically unable to return to the state of separate self. For instance, there is a condition called mirror-touch synesthesia, which causes individuals to experience a similar situation in the same part of the body, such as touch that another person feels. Which could imply that they have a permanent impairment of their sense of self well first of all, Jake, something like mirror touch synesthesia and uh, the any implication that they have an impaired sense of self, this is nothing at all like what it is to recognize first of all that that uh, your perceived self is an illusion and then ultimately to have that illusion and the feeling of being a separate self fall away completely they're completely different kinds of experiences also with the true transcending of the illusion of self and of separateness, um, it it is not something that you can go too deep into, and uh, well, let's see. I, First of all, your description selectively tune into these viewpoints when they are useful and then drop back into their standard experience of self when it's appropriate. That's not what happens. And that's not at all what happens. There is no dropping back into the standard experience of self. There is, in order to function in the world, there needs to be a mode of perception where you discern pieces of furniture so that you can walk around them, clothing so that you can pick out something that fits and is suitable when you're in a store, Uh, sort your laundry from others, Uh, teach the Dharma to people. It is necessary in the way that our minds function. To allow the mind to create a world of seemingly separate objects and interaction, that is something that is is uh, there's no way for a moment you can mistake that for reality. It is just it is just the way your mind simplifies things so that you can do those things, so that you can function in the world. And there is absolutely no loss of or stepping out of some other state uh, when that occurs. It is just that you are recognizing that that these mental constructs are necessary for... Your, the body and the mind uh, to act in the world. Um, and so it's not like you're going into some other place and coming out of it. It's just that when it's appropriate, this way of seeing things arises. And when this way of seeing things arises, it allows you to to participate in that wholeness, which is where your awareness resides. And as a matter of fact, it's not even your awareness. It's just a local manifestation of the awareness of that wholeness itself, of suchness itself. So it's something that suchness does that manifests locally, that allows local activity. Um, one of the confusions about their, the passing away, the relinquishing not only of the illusion of self, but the disappearance of the feeling of being separate. People will say things, you know, like there's no agency. Well, that's kind of nonsense. Your body and your mind are going to have effects and they're going to respond to causal influences. So that's total nonsense. It's that there is no agent in there. That's not, there's no separate, uh, there's no illusion of a separate ela- agent who's pulling the strings and doing things like that. That's that's the only thing that changes. You're, you're dwelling in that greater truth and you recognize that the relative truth is a necessary part of that greater truth in order for something in the form of a human being to participate in that greater dance of of wholeness. So you see, there's no possibility of going too deep or somehow. Now, what there is a possibility of is not actually reaching that place. In the four-path model that the Buddha describes, There is, in the third path, a place where there is a craving for formless existence and a craving for for form. Also, it's uh, sometimes described as craving for being and non-being. And this can become a trap. Someone who fails to move beyond that, that's the kind of a person who disappears into a mountain cave and dis- or disappears into the forest or withdraws into themselves in some other way and never comes back out again. They're not an awakened being. They're an almost awakened being that's fallen into a great trap. Um, that's the only sense in which there's a going too far. It's uh, somehow taking a, a wrong fork and getting stuck in a dead end. To realize how things really are, is to realize that uh, what, what seems to be separate now is an integral part of a much greater whole. And let me put this another way. Uh, the thing is that there in every, in every moment there is a probability distribution of all of the possible acts mental and physical that those five aggregates may engage in so there's a probability distribution of every possible act that that could arise in in that moment and doing nothing is one of is, is a kind of doing. Okay, so that probability distribution includes what would appear to be doing nothing as well. It's still a part of doing. Okay, so what happens due to the fact of consciousness being there, due to the fact of cognitive processes taking place in that mind, there is going to be a collapse of Schrodinger's quantum wave. And one of those possibilities is going to go from a potential with a certain probability to an actual act. You know, a done deal. It's 100% probability is gone. Whether it was a 90% probability or 0.009% probability, it's now a done deal. It's 100%. There is no non-doing, right? Because that mind and that body, they are a part of this continuously unfolding whole. So um, even somebody that did some kind of uh, withdrawal the way that uh, you've, you've described it there. Um, they The thing is that they wouldn't be perfectly in step with the great dance of the unfolding of suchness. They would be a bit out of step, but they would nevertheless be playing a role in that unfolding. But the role would be that of being yet another person who's a little bit out of step. And our goal as awakened being is to try to bring enough wisdom into those cognitive processes that take place in every single moment so that we we are in step with the dance, that we're contributing to the the aim and the evolution of, uh, of, of suchness Toward a place where there there is no more suffering. That's one of the that's one of the trends that we can see that that uh, we're at a place in the evolution of suchness where suffering seems to be necessary. But we're also at a place where we can see that there can be a place where suffering is no longer necessary. Not just on the individual level, but there 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 is an an eventual possibility of uh, an evolution of suchness to a point where suffering is no longer necessary in any form. So that becomes, it's from from all of our other desires and cravings having been replaced by the wish to participate in the evolution of this wholeness of which we are part that helps to bring us in step. And so yeah, so that's that's where we would like to be and that's what we would like to do. Um, I hope that answers your question. Um, your body and mind, the body and mind of a completely awakened person still manifests agency. It's a part of that whole. And what has changed is there's no longer the illusion of an agent that is going to cause you to be out of step. Hope that helps. And since I was kind of getting into something that was uh, uh, pretty deep there, any of you that are here that would would like to comment or or ask me about anything I just said uh, I'm uh, quite happy to take that comment
1: or question at this point before I go to the next one. I found your description of uh third path uh, and people who wander off into the cave on third path to be quite interesting it sort of it sort of inverts you know you probably heard Jeffrey Martin talk about the path of the world and the path of uh, freedom. And, and it sounds very much like you're referring to his his path of freedom when you talk about the people who wander off into the cave.
0: Yes, as a matter of fact, uh, 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 I, w- I wasn't thinking of that at the time. But yeah, that that is exactly what, how I have interpreted his two paths. Is the person that Get stuck in the person that actually moves forward. And uh, I agree more and more with uh, the, the statement that his four locations absolutely do not correspond to the four paths. They just have certain overlaps.
1: <laughs> so so once, once one has entered stream entry, is there a mm-hmm. way to cultivate moving into the um, unfolding paths so to speak yes
0: absolutely every path has its own work and its own direction uh the one guideline to the kind of work and the kind of direction uh that defines each path as a path is if you look at the uh ten fetters model that uh, the buddha uh, presented for those for those four paths, so what marks the transition from first path to second path is a what we could describe as a profound insight to the first three of the four noble truths, and the profundity of that insight into the nature of suffering and the cause of suffering is such that it empowers a person so they are no longer anywhere nearly as much affected by craving as they were before, and this empowers them uh, to do the work of second path, which is the elimination of all craving for for the sense realm. And there are certain practices that are most particularly conducive to that. Um, Within the framework of the satipatthana in particular, there is the mindfulness of Vedana, of feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that arise in association with every object of consciousness that arises. And there is the uh, there is the mindfulness of mental states, which uh, the version of the Satipatthana that we have right now is a simplification of that that has been translated into describing <coughs> mental states of meditation. But it's actually a good model. It's not necessarily. Uh, bad just because it does, it's not quite as clear as it could be, but you can see how that mindfulness of the kinds of mental states that characterise different qualities of meditation experience can be extended in much finer detail to the constant shifting of mental states that occur uh, in the course of one's life, moment to moment. And these will provide the understanding, these will lead through to that clarity of the nature of suffering, of the subtle addiction to craving that is, constitutes the nature of a person working who is on the path, that first path, and which, which they are going to uh, want to uh, come into a place of, of deep insight concerning. So yeah, there's particular work, there's particular practices that are conducive and that's true of each of the paths. So thank you for that question. Okay, well, let's see what we have to talk about next here. have um, I, w- I would really like to, it, to pronounce his name correctly. Ev- Evgeny, is that what you said? Uh, it was
1: Ted? I, I think it's roughly Evgeny. Ev- Evgeny. Evgeny.
0: Ev- Evgeny. Then, please. I will. Okay. Evgeny asks, in what situations you'd recommend dry insight practices over samatha or vipassana? You said in an interview that dry insight didn't work for you but Samatha did. Daniel Ingram said in an interview, he was struggling with concentration until he came across the noting practice as taught by Mahasi Sayada. Is there a way to tell which practice would work for which student? Well, Evgeny, what I'm gonna to have to do is give you a little history of Buddhism lesson here. Um, contrary to common belief, uh, meditation ceased to be a significant part of uh, Buddhism for many centuries. Uh, it's estimated by uh, people, you might like to read McMahon's book uh, on uh, 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 Buddhist modernism, the rising of Buddhist modernism. Uh, there's an even uh, another very interesting book called Western Buddhism that goes into some of this history as well. Somewhere around the 10th century, um, meditation ceased to be a part of Buddhism and, uh, and su- of the southern schools of Buddhism, um, and the northern schools uh, pretty much fell away, except for their variants in China and uh, the way they developed in Tibet. And the way they developed in Tibet was was a considerable diversion from the kind of path that the Buddha himself laid out. So what happened in reaction to colonialism and to Christian missionaries, Western science, and the kind of rational philosophy that was developed in the West as a part of what is known as the European Enlightenment? In defense of the cultures of buddhist countries in the era of european colonialism buddhist modernism arose modern buddhism was created and the buddhism that we think is traditional the zen from japan was created in the late 1900s the theravada of Burma and Thailand and Sri Lanka was created in the late 1900s. This is the Buddhist modernism. And every attempt was made in the creation of Buddhist modernism to present Buddhism as something that was highly consistent, if not superior to European science, uh, science. that Buddhism was philosophically at least as profound and rational, if not more so, than European rational philosophy. Um, that Buddhism and its ultimate goals of awakening were the universal goal of all religions, including the uh, religions of the Western world. Uh, colonial countries and now we have to keep in mind too that that their uh islam had been introduced to many buddhist countries as well and unfortunately we're in a period of time where we're seeing actual violent conflict between uh islam and buddhism which is very tragic but that's completely aside. Like. anyway as a part of this meditation had to be re Invented or rediscovered. Now, depending on your point of view, it's hard to say whether it was reinvented or rediscovered. <laughs> but Buddhists like Ledi Sayada and uh, uh, Mahasi, Mingyung, uh, these, these other Buddhists, they studied the scriptures, both the Tipitaka, the Suttas, and the Anaya and the Abhidhamma but also the commentaries like the Visuddhimagga, And as a matter of fact, as it turned out, they ended up using the Visuddhimagga as more the, modern, uh, more the basis for modern Buddhism than they did the suttas. So what we call Theravada today, we could, we could say it's parent scriptures are more in the nature of the Visuddhimagga and the Muddhi uh, and the suttas are actually somewhat secondary. So they studied these things. They looked at what the Buddha said, and they tried to rediscover, to reinvent Buddhism. They focused on something called Vipassana. Uh, Historically, Vipassana, or, well, in terms of the Tipitaka, in terms of, there's uh, probably not more than, one or maybe two maybe no mention of vipassana in the uh, Vinaya, and there are a limited number of references to vipassana in the suttas but these are all in the suttas that have been categorized as the later suttas the ones that had undergone the most uh, modification and uh, the vast majority of these references to vipassana are together with samatha, samatha and vipassana, and they're spoken of as a method of training and as a mental skill that develops in the same context that samatha is a method of training and a mental skill to be developed and that both were necessary. But this happened to be what people focused on during that time of the reinvention of Buddhism, And so there were um, about four different lineages of reinvention of meditation. Uh, uh, The two which persist most uh, strongly to the present day uh, since the late 19th century are uh, the the one that uh, culminated in the Mahasi version and the one that culminated in the Goenka version. And Goenka uh, was a student of Uba So we can sort of see Uba as the father of that lineage, but at the same time we have to recognize that Goenka modified it. Ruth Denison was the other heir to Uba And that version of Uba Ken's teaching, you can compare it to Goenka's and Yudhisthira's. Now, with this bare vipassana, and it shouldn't be called bare insight, because it confuses us with the panya, with the wisdom that is that the four are that the three characteristics that are pointing to, and that uh, that interconnectedness are pointing to, and the emptiness are pointing to. It's, it should be vipassana should be recognized as the seeing through, seeing thing, training attention to investigate in a way that you see more clearly what's actually there. That's what vipassana is, and so the Mahasi method was a great gift. It, for those people who were still meditating uh, in, in the Theravadan countries at that time, they were basically sitting in dullness. And sort of the principle uh, that meditative development revolved around in those days was uh, a misunderstanding of the Pali word ekagata, as single-pointedness. And so they would sit down and they would empty their mind of everything by focusing on one thing only. And they would enter into uh, a a state of, uh, well, really a state of stupor more than anything else. Uh, And no wonder meditation was not popular.
1: Somebody has tried to make
0: arguments several centuries prior to that, but subsequent historians have looked at that and, and uh, they're rather dubious about the sources of that. Mahasi did a great service. He introduced a meditation technique that worked. Um, it- It worked in contrast to something that was different, that blew people into a stupor. Now, in my mind that whatever it was that Daniel Ingram studied and didn't succeed at was not Samatha, and it was most definitely not Samatha Vipassana. It was neither of those. And he refers to it as concentration. And I've spoken with him and I've heard him speak. And he uses concentration and precisely the the reason I never use concentration, I speak of, of attentional stability is because the English word concentration carries connotations that are totally inconsistent with what we mean by attentional stability and what we mean by samadhi. So... I don't know what it was he practiced, but I guarantee you it was not the samatha and it was not the development of samadhi because what he calls concentration is not samadhi and it's not samatha. So I'm not at all surprised that it didn't work for him. I'm not at all surprised. Now, I was, I I, I just... You know, I tried doing the Mahasi Vipassana and it didn't work for me, but I subsequently found out what the problems were. With, uh, the, the obstacles for me had more to do with the way it was being taught. And by the way, I'll make the statement that that particular method is being taught in so many different ways right now that it's absolutely ludicrous to think of it as a single method. What Daniel Ingram teaches is so totally different than what is taught by uh, uh, was taught by Upandita,' is taught by Udayakananda, which is taught by all of those successors in the lineage, uh, uh, in the Mahasi, original Mahasi lineage in in, uh, Burma, Um, what is taught by Joseph Goldstein and Jack Kornfield and people like that is totally different than either that, because they were actually students of Ajahn Chah, and Ajahn Chah had his own version of what Mahasi was teaching. And then Jack and and Joseph Goldstein and these others, of course, they Americanized uh, that. So what these different people are teaching is only superficially similar, and the version of it didn't work for me. Subsequently, I did a month-long retreat with Uvi Vikananda in the traditional Mahasi, in the Mahasi tradition, and it pretty much worked for me the way it should. But of course, at that time, I had a lot of with uh, vipassana under my belt, so I frustrated poor Vivekananda because I was experiencing joy and happiness and things like that and kept telling me you're not supposed to. Just just note it and go back to the rise and fall. You know, that this is a defilement of insight, you know, but there's no way I could make it not happen. But it worked and I could say it hadn't worked as well previously. Back to the original question here. Uh, in what situations I'd recognize dry insight practices over samatha vipassana? Well, with the degree of understanding that I have developed since then, the answer is never, because there are uh, the Mahasi was a fantastic gift to the world. It allowed meditation to take hold once more in Buddhism. It allowed. It has led to, first to Buddhist, uh, or I didn't lead to, uh, it was a part of Buddhist modernism, which is very important, and it has led to, it is actually one of the major factors that has led to the very existence of a Western or American Buddhism. These are two different things from a sociological point of view. Uh, uh, of sociology of religion, Western Buddhism, American Buddhism are, are one is a subset of the other, but they also are very different in, in different ways. I told you this is going to be a history lesson, so it probably Buddhist boring. You made the mistake for that. Anyway, yeah, it was a great thing, but it's uh, uh, there's one of the suttas where uh, you know it's talking about a bird flying on one wing and, uh, you know, Vipassana being uh, a wing and Samatha being a wing. And a bird doesn't fly very successfully on one wing. There's another analogy in a different sutta, Buddha is speaking of the same things, and he talks about a, uh, an animal, I don't know if it's a dog or something like that, who uh, has, has a, a normal leg and a stump, and, and he's trying to walk, uh, and he can't walk normally. Samatha Vipassana is what the Buddha recognized, uh, what the Buddha recommended. And um, the Beer Vipassana has done a great service. And it is a practice that has certain values, but it is, it is incomplete. It is seriously incomplete. It is limiting. Uh, there are individuals have gone beyond it. And those those individuals can attest to uh, what I'm saying in a very deep way. Look into what Kenneth Folk has to say, for example. And he's not the only one, there's, there's, there's quite a few others. Um, so, yeah, the answer is, is, uh, is, 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 is never and that it wouldn't be correct to say if... I, I don't think that Daniel Ingram would have had the same experience if he had done a real uh, Samatha Vipassana practice. Uh, the Samatha that the Buddha taught appears to have relied more heavily on jhana than what I present in The Mind Illuminated, and in what the most of the Mahayana schools, including Tibetan schools, present. Um, but I think that we, we can probably understand that if we're able to set aside the very rigid version of jhana practice that, was, that is defined in... Uh, the Vasudhi Magga, which I say is really the primary source for Theravada Buddhism these days. And go back to the suttas and we see the way it's used. And what you find is that Samatha itself is to be in a jhana like state, but without the limitations that jhana requires. So jhana is a way of entering into a a samatha-like state and is helpful in the development of the samatha that the Buddha was saying that one should uh, develop uh, uh, and uh, in combination with that particular way of using attention uh, that that, uh, vipassana refers to. So the way we could sort of sum it up is what i would recommend is somebody do a practice where they learn right uh, samata or, or right right samadhi sama samadhi and samasati so samasati sati and sama samati are are the uh, those are the samata components the third component which Personally, my interpretation is that the Buddha didn't really tease that out and recognize it as uh, what it was. He, he was teaching it, but since, it, since his usage of it shows up later on in his teachings, that uh, the realization, what he referred to as the Seven Factors of Enlightenment was a, a, a diligent or energetic investigation. A phenomenon, and I think later uh, he used the term vipassana to refer to that exactly. So probably, if he had if he had teased that out, that that what vipassana refers to is using attention in such a way that you're seeing through your preconceived notions, your expectations, the mental models that you've created. You look at neuroscience and you look at predictive processing and information integration theory, you'll see the mind creates models, information comes up from the sense organs, and the mind is trying to match the two up. The reason the one uh, way of approaching it is called predictive processing is what the mind wants to do is to create a model by which it can successfully predict what's going to happen in the future it's going to be able to uh, correctly predict what is the most appropriate way of reaction to what arises in the future so vipassana is using attention in such a way that it sees through the obvious it sees through the expected it sees through the previously formulated conceptualizations of reality that are obscuring what the attention is investigating. And so someone should do a practice that develops stability of attention through all of the four grades of samadhi, that develops sati through the stages of uh, increasingly introspective awareness, and then, ultimate, you know, awareness is both extrospective and introspective. What we're short on is the introspective aspect. We develop that sati as introspective awareness, and then the sati sampajana jhana as a metacognitive introspective awareness. That's the samatha component. The second, third, and fourth jhanas are pure sati. Uh, attention has already. And dropped away and then the third thing to develop is the seeing things as they are with attention the seeing through the seeing into the seeing what's actually there in what you investigate so those are the things those three things should be no matter what method a person is using to arrive at that whether it's the method I described in TMI or some other, I would never recommend bare insight over a method that combines all of those, the samatha and the vipassana, or the samadhi sati and vipassana. Um, so, there. Another long-winded answer to a question, but uh, so we, we come from... The History of Meditation, actually, those of you who want to go into Surya, there's, uh, there's a great little blog that, that I just came across where um, Bhikkhu Sujata, uh, he's a prolific and wonderful writer, um, he wrote a book, uh, I'm trying to recall the name of it right now, uh, anyway, it's it's a blog about his intention. Oh, the book he wrote was History of Mindfulness, and his intention to write uh, an updated version of that. So uh, there's a blog where he talks about that. So if you were to uh, Google History of mind- Mindfulness Sujato or Viku uh, Sujato, you'll come up with that blog post, and you'll probably you'll also come up with a PDF of the book of his original book, History of Mindfulness, so that you could go into some of this deeper, more deeply. Look at McMahon's, uh, the uh, origins of Buddhist modernism, and uh, um, I'm sorry, I can't remember Miss Gleick's first name, but her book, American Buddhism. And uh, it's very illuminating. It, it, it makes all kinds of pieces fall into place. It makes all of the sort of arguments that we've heard between different meditation teachers, and uh, I put Daniel in the forefront of the argu- arguers there. He loves to argue. Uh, it, it makes all those things look ridiculous but when, when the, the clarity of the whole picture emerges.
1: So, uh. Chuladasa, can I ask one slight clarifying question? Yes. Uh, you said that the modern Buddhism developed around the end of the 1900s. Did you mean the 19th century?
0: Yeah, uh, 19, yes. I meant nineteenth century. Sorry, okay. no worries. Thanks. Old brains switch things around, and I happen to have an old brain at the moment. Oh, the end of the nineteenth century, the late eighteen hundreds. So, yes. There's another kind of Buddhism that is the Western and American Buddhisms that uh, they write about that the late nineteen hundreds. <laughs> The post-1950, 1900s, okay. All right, let's see what's next. So, uh, if we've dealt with the leftover questions, then I'd really like to switch to questions from people that are here today. Uh, and I know Michelle has a couple. Question: Is there anyone else here that has uh, um, submitted questions? Just you have. What, what? What is your name? All it shows on my screen is user. Um, I don't know if you're, I'll see if I can unmute you. No, I can't unmute you. Okay, uh, I, I don't. Oh, there, good, yeah, all right. One, what, what? What is your name, please? It's Gabriel. Gabriel, okay, thanks, <laughs> Gabriel, sorry. Okay, so we have a question from Gabriel and a couple of questions from Michelle. I see, all right. Um, well, Michelle's come first, and so I'll, I'll I'll speak to those, Michelle, and then I'll speak to Gabrielle's question. Okay, so Michelle asks, what is the difference between the knowledge that comes from tapping into the resonance of others who have had prior experiences, uh, those moments that we spontaneously have access to abilities, information, without prior experiences, training, and the knowing that gives access to experience based on information before events occur? as well as the thoughts and experience of others that one has direct, uncelested access to. Um, Parsing this is a little difficult. I may have to ask your assistance, Michelle. It looks like your semicolon is saying, what is the difference between knowledge that comes from tapping into the resonance of others and the spontaneous occurring uh, occurrence of uh, knowledge and uh, abilities that uh, you didn't, have previous sources from. Uh, did, did I, am I interpreting that correctly?
1: Yeah, yeah, so I mean, I was listening to one of your previous lectures about mm-hmm. tapping into the resonance and yeah. and having that unsolicited information come through, but what's right. the distinction between that and when one has um, access to Occur, things before they occur, to having access to people's thoughts and experiences mm-hmm. without um, mm-hmm. unsolicited, without even trying to.
0: What they are uh, is they're different aspects of the same fundamental uh, thing about the nature of uh, the, the the a deeper understanding of the nature of things, reveals the uh, the interconnectedness of everything in a way that includes the interconnectedness of all of what we refer to as mind, and in every instance of it. The key word here is resonance. You know, what do we mean by resonance? So, for example to enter a state of resonance that gives you access to the uh to the knowledge uh, the wisdom the uh the ways of understanding things that someone else has developed whether they're living or lived some time in the past is that you have to You have to have touched into enough of the same wisdom that your mind is essentially vibrating closely enough to the same frequency that it can tune into and vibrate in the same frequency, right? And then there arises this knowledge. So, we're really talking about the, the same thing. So, um, and that's what I was re- referring to there. Uh, as far as the knowing things before they happen, I'll just make this sort of general statement about paranormal phenom- phenomena. The research that has been done on it consistently shows uh, a statistically significant effect of uh, of experiments designed to demonstrate whether these things are real or not. But overwhelmingly, at the same time, the degree, the extent to which they occur, even though it achieves that level in science uh, that we consider the threshold of statistical significance, is essentially meaningless from the practical point of view. So, in other words, what the science of paranormal says is, yeah, there really is something going on here, but it appears to be pointless and worthless because to the degree, the degree to which it happens is not, it's not practically significant. It may be statistically significant, but it's not practically significant. So, yes, there, it, I don't think there's anyone that hasn't had the experience of, they think of somebody, and then the the phone rings, and it 's them or they they suddenly have a feeling about something or someone, and subsequently it turns out that at that particular time something of great significance happened to that in that place or to that thing or to that person or so so forth it 's a universal experience; some people seem to be more sensitive and open to it. But I'd say it's just another manifestation of the total interconnectedness of everything. And the fact that, uh, you know, when we talk about things as being premonitory, like premonitions, um, that's just pointing to the other thing that we already know from the Western perspective of, of philosophy and science, but time is not what it appears to be. And so um, for somebody to have, to seemingly have knowledge that they couldn't have because it hasn't happened yet, uh, that only appears really weird because of the way our minds perceive time, not the way time actually is. so. Yeah. so all right, you've got another question, and then we get to Frederick, or to Gabriel's. Yeah. Okay, um, if neuroplasticity is a direct result of meditation, do you feel that it may be possible to alter DNA in the same way? If we can grow and reroute neural pathways, it seems plausible that the same rerouting would be possible in the coding of proteins within the DNA. Uh, science and permanence or both. Well, it's a very interesting question. It's it's one that I played around with, uh, you know, looked into somewhat uh, recently. Absolutely, uh, neuroplasticity has turned out, contrary to what all scientists believe uh, up until about 20 years ago, to be an ongoing fact of the nervous system and that every single event in your life and the way you respond to it uh, is changing your brain in some way. And some of those ways involve significant rewiring. Uh, So, yes. Genes. Well, at my level of understanding of genetics, there is, you know, we understand how evolution happens except that there's a a funny little thing in there is just exactly what triggers a series of mutations to occur together and um, the other area of genetics that is very interesting is called epigenetics. And this is where, uh, by, uh, by blocking the expression of certain genes, or by unlocking the expression of certain genes, that it, we produce very significant changes in the uh, genetic expression of the individual. In other words, the phenotype changes, but if we look into the genes, we don't find that the genotype has changed, but that there has been a shift in the part of the total collection of genes present that is manifesting. And once again, this is a new area of exploration, and discovery and new things are being uncovered on an almost daily basis, but i wouldn 't be surprised if the answer to the fuzzy question in evolution why is there punctuated evolution why Why are there clusters of genes that add up together in the particular way they do that if that is not somehow uh, related to epigenetics now For those that don't know much about epigenetics or or haven't heard of it, that is where environmental influences alter the way your genes are expressed. So uh, in a sense, we're uh, we're, we're saying that Lamarckism wasn't totally wrong, (laughs) and that epigenetic effects can be passed along, because an epigenetic change that takes place uh, in parents, the parents will provide the environment for that same epigenetic change to take place in their offspring. Fascinating, isn't it? Epigenetics can, epigenetic changes can be passed from generation to generation without resorting to altering the genes. but Couldn't this possibly be the, couldn't it possibly be that maybe they do lead to changes in the genetic makeup? Uh, Could that possibly not really explain some of the unanswered questions in in evolution? So uh, I can't really say, I can't give you a a clear answer to that, but uh, I can certainly see That very possibly that may be true and I could see that if we could uh, if we could actually achieve an awakened society that children growing up in awakened society may undergo the kind of epigenetic changes that conduce to them growing up to being uh, uh, even more highly awakened parents uh, that that some change in our genetic makeup may take place that lessen the tendency for uh, those parts of our brain that generate the feeling of being a separate self to exert the effect they do and to give rise to craving to the same extent. So, So there's a fascinating possibility there that maybe Maybe a few generations of children growing up in a completely awakened society would result in a change in DNA, so that we don 't have to do all this other work to uh, wake up so it 's a lovely thing to think about and speculate and hope for, but unfortunately, we have to hope for it in a context of uh, all being in a boat paddling in different trying to, trying to paddle in different directions as we 're carried towards a waterfall. <laughs> the cataclysm approaches. Apocalypse is not far away. Um, maybe not time for those genetic changes to take place. Okay, Gabrielle, we have time to look at your question. So, uh, um, I hope I'm not being off topic in the question. I play guitar and also sing. I've also read that you play an instrument, uh, the sitar. Yes, yeah, about S I T A R. Uh, what are some suggestions you have to approach uh, uh, on these two activities simultaneously in uh, mindful? Um, personally, whether I can articulate this clearly, I, I don't think in words, and I have to work at it sometimes with, with ideas like this. But I personally find uh, the phenomena of music as a whole, and particularly The the phenomena of playing music as having so much in common with uh, uh, the kinds of changes in the way that we use our minds uh, that I can't help using musical analogies for some of the changes that take place in the process of meditation and uh, awakening but I haven't ever uh, attempted to articulate those other than drawing upon them as metaphors in certain certain cases. But there is there are certain states that one enters into uh, in playing music. It's that point where you may be playing a piece of music that somebody else created, but you are now totally making it your own, or you may be completely improvising. And the most spiritual music is complete improvisation. Traditional classical Indian music, sitar music, is improvisation on a theme. No musician in that tradition will ever play the same raga, the same, same, the same rag the same way twice. Never, won't happen. No two musicians will play the same log the same way as each other because it is, in its essence, improvisational. And I find the same thing true in jazz and other music improvisation. It's probably about as far as I can go with the answer to that question, but there's a lot of interesting similarities there, and maybe your having asked will trigger me to conceptualize those more so that I can perhaps communicate what, what I've experienced uh, more clearly. The second question is stage four, strong and intense body-face movements together with uh, energy through the body supposed to be normal during meditation, uh, happened in two or three sessions and a few during the day to a lesser extent. Um, they, those are normal in meditation, it is unusual for them to occur as early as stage four. Uh, But they are are very common in these uh, adept stages. They're, as a matter of fact, uh, sort of an inevitable part of the uh, unfolding of uh, unification of mind and classification of the senses and pacification, complete pacification of the mind, the rising PT. So they're completely normal. Um, What's unusual to have them happen as early as stage four. You say some of them resemble my total posture reprogramming and others resemble reaction from fear with memories. Well, first of all, you'll find that uh, about the Postural reprogramming—you'll find uh, if you look in the later parts of TMI that I talk about that in terms of my own personal experience—and I tell people to expect that people very commonly experience that. uh, Not exactly—it's—it's really a part of the thing, but not quite the same thing. Where at stage six. It seems like that the nose that they're following the breath at is somewhere uh, off to the upper right or upper left, or you know it's some place that their nose couldn't possibly be that kind of distortion of proprioceptive uh, function um, so yeah, the aspect of. Postural reprogramming that you allude to uh, goes right along with the uh, body-face movements and the energy movements as, as a phenomenon that I discuss later on. Now, you mentioned here others resemble a reaction from fear with memories. Now that's a, that that's a that's one of the most important things that happens in stage four. And that's where the purifications, uh, what I refer to as purifications, which is the resolution and reintegration of the resolution of uh, uh, internal conflicts in terms of values and things like that. That's where all of that comes in. And uh, so... Uh, please do read the um, third interlude discussing the magic of mindfulness and then read in the chapter stage four uh, about uh, what happens when distractions of an emotional nature arise and how to deal with those. So um, actually it may be your mind uh, approaching certain very powerful purifications that is triggering the, the movements that you talk about and the energy currents uh, prematurely to where we would otherwise experience them. So when I look at your question here, Gabrielle, it tells me is, sounds like you're about to experience some wonderful transformations Due to the resolution and integration of uh, some of your past conditioning and past psychological and emotional trauma. Uh, So, which is a really good thing, which is a really important thing to happen in stage four. which is, to go back to an earlier question, the absence of that is the exact reason that I would never, ever recommend bare insight to anybody because it doesn't give them the opportunity to do that. And then when insight starts to develop, then they have all of their old crap come up and they have to deal with that at the same time. And that's what gives rise to what uh, is referred to by uh, um Uh, will be written as adverse effects of meditation and Daniel Ingram goes on about as the dark night and things like that. It's not having had these purifications at the right time and having all of them come up at once. So yeah. Yeah. Work with those, read about them, work with the ways that with the instructions there, find a TMI teacher or teacher in training, or go on the uh, Dharma treasure community website, get, whatever guidance you need to work through those. So it's good stuff. It's great stuff. It's good news to me to hear that you're experiencing that. And we're out of time. (laughs) But um, I hope you found this useful. I'm glad that I was able to answer all of the questions, and I apologize to uh, people that weren't here today that I didn't get to your questions, but uh, it will happen, I promise, so. Have a wonderful rest of the day. I hope you found this beneficial. Uh, William, I'm reading your paper and I love it. Um, so, all, oh, be well,
1: be happy. Until next time.